Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it's our prayer this morning that you would move in our hearts through your word, by the power of your spirit, to make us Christ-like. Particularly, Lord, we pray that you would cause us to rejoice in you and trust you and call on you when things are not the way that we wish they were. And we ask also, Father, that you would change our wishes Make us people who wish for what you have said you will do, and for nothing else. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to do something a little bit different this morning by front-loading the application. In other words, I'm going to tell you right now uh, what this passage, what these two passages, Psalm 66 and 67, mean for you. And, and how I think we should embrace these things and, and go out and try to apply them. And then we'll look at the text, and then we'll circle back to the application, and I'll try to tell you um, how I think we can grow in doing these things. So two things, uh, one from Psalm 66 and one from Psalm 67, that I think the Lord wants us to embrace on the basis of these texts. First... Trust God when things aren't the way you want them to be. Now, another way to say that is trust God in the midst of affliction. And we all deal with affliction, and we all deal with things not being the way we want them to be. Maybe it's your health. Maybe it's your kid's behavior. Maybe it's your work situation. Maybe it's something to do with your spouse. Maybe, I don't know what it is for you, but whatever it is, and it could get a lot worse for all of us. We can acknowledge that, you know. We could wind up with a horrible cancer diagnosis. Things could go terribly wrong uh, in society at large. Uh, all kinds of things could happen. But the bottom line that I think we want to say is we want to trust God in the midst of whatever affliction we're dealing with. That's Psalm 66. We'll look at that in just a second. Psalm 67, we want to train our affections and when I talk about affections, I'm talking about your taste, your appetite. And, and sometimes you can't really help what tastes good to you, can you? But there are such things as acquired tastes, right? And it, it is also the case that sometimes our acquired tastes, it turns out that this is what we were supposed to like to begin with, all right? So we want to train our affections, these gut-level desires that we have, to hope and glory in God's goodness. In other words, we want to be people who want what God says is good and what God says he's going to do. Okay, so those are our two applications. Now let's look at them, look at how they come from Psalms 66 and 67. Uh, as we approach Psalm 66, I want to take us to the middle of the psalm because the middle of the psalm tells us why the psalmist is saying what he's saying. So look with me to begin with at Psalm 66, verse 10, where the psalmist says, For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. That's an unpleasant process, silver being tried. 
Uh, just to remind you, I'm sure you know this, what they do with silver when they try it, when they refine it, they smelt it, they heat it up. And what happens is the impurities and the things that you don't want in there, they rise to the top and then they smelt that stuff off the top. But first they have to get it really hot. So this is a process of testing and purification. And then look at what he says in verse 11 that testing looked like. Verse 11, you brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. Now, the net, I think, is probably figurative. I don't think there was literally a trap, you know, a net that was laid out for these people. But I, so I think what the psalmist is saying is that you caused us to be taken captive. We were taken captive, and then the next line, you laid a crushing burden on our backs. The oppressors, the enslavers, forced them to do things that they otherwise would not have chosen to do. And then he goes on, verse 12, you let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water. Yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Now, I don't know what the psalmist has in mind. He's not specific. He doesn't explain what set of circumstances he's, he's uh, referring to here. But this sounds like a familiar pattern, doesn't it? Net, crushing burden, maybe defeat in battle with the people riding over their heads. And then the last thing, you brought us out to a place of abundance. Does that, does that pattern seem familiar? It sounds to me like enslaved in Egypt, forced uh, to, to bear heavy burdens in Egypt, uh, subdued by the overwhelming, but then exodus, wilderness, and then brought out to a place of abundance. There seems to be that same sort of trajectory here. So it's like the psalmist is describing some circumstance in his own life or maybe in the nation's life where there was this affliction and difficulty, but then he experienced God's deliverance and he's using the exodus sequence from Israel's history Seemingly, it seems, to talk about this. And then look, look at verse uh, 14 where he says, That which my lips uttered and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. And, and do you hear what he's saying there? He was in trouble. He was afflicted. And what did he do? He's calling on the Lord. He's not questioning God's goodness and he's making vows to God. He, he seems to be saying, saying something like this to the Lord. Lord, I know that you are in sovereign control. And in these unpleasant circumstances, things not being the way that I want them to be, what I'm going to do is put my hope in you, and I'm going to call on you, and if you will deliver me, I'm going to worship you. You see that? There's not a, there's not a deal made like, if you'll deliver me, I'll pay you back in this way. The deal that's made is, I'm going to trust you, and if you bring me to a place where I can worship you through sacrifices and offerings, I'll do that. That's what the psalmist is saying. Now, that's the, that's the sort of inner heart of this thing, and everything else is growing out of the psalmist being delivered from this affliction. Look at the end of verse 12 again. You brought us out to a place of abundance. So now, having be, been delivered, look at what he says at the beginning. Verses 1 through 4 are kind of a unit. You notice at the end of verse 4, there's that word selah. That sort of marks a, a turn in thought. And this whole first section, verses 1 through 4, is a set of commands to praise God. 
followed by some descriptions of God that are meant to provoke praise. So look at verse 1. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Why is he saying that? He's saying that on the basis of his experience. He was afflicted. People were riding over his head. This crushing burden was on his back. He's calling out to the Lord. He experiences God's deliverance. And now he's saying, all the earth, everybody in all creation should shout for joy to God. That's the first command, shout for joy to God. Second command, sing the glory of his name. Third command, give to him glorious praise. Fourth command, say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So he gives these four commands and now he starts describing. So great is your power that your enemies come cringing to you. All the earth worships you and sings praises to you. They sing praises to your name. Note how verse 2 says, sing the glory of his praise. Verse 4 describes all the earth doing that. Verse 1 calls all the earth to sing for joy. Verse 4 describes all the earth worshiping God. Can you imagine what that would be like? Can you picture that in your mind? Can you picture a global celebration of God's awesome power. I mean, it's great to have this congregation all singing heartily to the Lord. It's a wonderful thing to come together and all of us sing God's praises. Uh, maybe, maybe you went back in April to Together for the Gospel and, and the Yum Center was full of people, 10,000 people singing God's praises. Can you imagine all the earth's inhabitants bursting into song? in praise of the Lord. That's what this psalmist is describing. And, and again, I think this is in response to his experience. So you know what this is? This is testimony for us. The psalmist is testifying to us that in spite of the ways we are afflicted, we should trust God and we should praise him through these afflictions. He will deliver us. He will deliver us and we will join in this global celebration of God. Now, he's going to, so he's, he's called everybody, commanded everybody to praise God in verses 1 through 4. Now, in verses 5 through 7, he's going to tell us why we should praise God. Look at verse 5. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. Now, at one level, I think we could say, well, which ones? Which ones? And that might be valid because this is sort of nonspecific. We're about to get some specific deeds. But at another level, we could say all of them. All of them. You remember what John 1 says? John 1 tells us that there, was, there is nothing that has come to be that God did not do. Everything has been made by God. And, and the Bible teaches us that God is sovereignly orchestrating all things. Come and see what God has done. He is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. And now he goes specific on us. And in verse 6, he's specifically going to refer to, I think, the crossing of the Red Sea and then the crossing of the Jordan River. 
And it's interesting how maybe you've, maybe you've read those narratives back in Exodus and then in Joshua, and you've thought to yourself, well, these seem really familiar to one another. And, and, and the psalmist is saying, yeah, they are familiar. The crossing of the Red Sea is like the crossing of the River Jordan. He, he says here in verse 6, he turned the sea into dry land. And then, uh, I've got a semicolon in the ESV, they passed through the river on foot. Those two things are alike. God is awesome in his deeds toward the children of man. And here's here are a couple of examples. He brought Israel through the Red Sea, and then he brought Israel through the River Jordan. There, verse 6, did we rejoice in him. I think the psalmist probably has in mind the way that after the crossing of the Red Sea, you remember Exodus 15, there's this glorious uh, song in praise of God, and, and the women actually lead Israel in this, this dancing song where they celebrate God's goodness. And then he goes on in verse 7 to describe the Lord. There did we rejoice in him, the one who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. This is more reason to praise God. His rule is everlasting. His rule is eternal. He has always been in charge, and he will always be in charge. Who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. This is international oversight for you. This is all-encompassing dominion that God is exercising. And then finally, in verse 7, the psalmist says, Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. Selah. Okay, so the psalmist is called all creation to praise the Lord. And then he's invited everyone to come and see why they should praise the Lord. All the earth, all the inhabitants of the earth. And now he calls all peoples in verse 8. Bless our God, O peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. Who has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. So here again he's testifying to us. He hasn't told us yet, we, we looked at it already, but he hasn't told us yet about the affliction that he endured. But that's what he has in mind, isn't it? He kept, our, he kept us alive. Can, can you look back over your life and, and remember occasions when you nearly died? Your life is due to God's grace keeping you alive. I mean, even through, maybe if, you're, if you've uh, been around someone who's given birth and experienced that harrowing struggle between life and death, all of us, all of us can look at that and say, it is by God's grace that I am alive. God has kept our soul among the living and has not let our feet slip. And now he talks about the affliction, verse 10. For you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us as silver is tried. You brought us into the net. You laid a crushing burden on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and through water, yet you have brought us out to a place of abundance. Now, now think about what's going on in this psalm. I think there's a sense in which this is particular uh, two, it, and it's sort of informed by the exodus from Egypt and then Israel coming into the land of promise. But then it's easy, because of, because of the way it's so nonspecific, it's easy for all of us, as we've sort of been doing, to think about how these words apply to us. And I would also suggest 
that these words can be sort of mapped onto the future, where at the end of our days, we will look back and see how the Lord tested us, tried us as silver is tried. And note, note there's a purpose for that. There, there's a, a good design in this. The affliction that we're enduring, the, the, the fact that the circumstances are not the way we would want them to be, God has a good purpose for this. He's trying to smelt away this dross in our character and in our hearts. And, and, and we, we, we're ensnared by this net where we experience these crushing burdens. But then you brought us out to a place of abundance. The Christian faith teaches that there is going to be a resurrection from the dead and that we are going to inhabit glorified bodies, not like these lowly bodies, but bodies that are like the body that Jesus received at the resurrection, Paul says in the book of Philippians. And then Revelation says and Isaiah says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, unstained, unspoiled. It will be the ultimate place of abundance. And in these resurrection glorified bodies, we will experience God's goodness. We will have greater capacity to do so. We will be liberated from all sin and, and all corruption. And we will, we will live like we've never lived. So what the psalm is, is doing here is, is both res- picking up things from the past and anticipating the future. And in response to all this, in his own experience and his knowledge of the past and his expectation for the future, the psalmist says here in verse 13, I will come into your house with burnt offerings. Now, you, you, you may have noted in Psalm 66 at the superscription, it says, to the choir master, a song, a psalm. And, and um, uh, there's no reference to David here. So this is maybe a psalm that was written after the temple was built. And this psalmist is saying, because of the way that you've delivered me, I'm going to go to the place where you are present, and I'm going to offer up a burnt offering. I will perform, he says in verse 13, my vows to you. We've already considered those briefly, probably vows. He's going to say here in verse 14, uh, vows that he made in the midst of his affliction. That which my lips uttered, verse 14, and my mouth promised when I was in trouble. So think about the way the psalmist is instructing us to deal with affliction. He's not saying directly, trust God when your circumstances aren't what, what, they, what you want them to be. But that's what he's saying, isn't it? He's saying, this is the way that I lived. I trusted the Lord. And he's also revealing to us that in the midst of these circumstances, he was saying to the Lord, I, what I want to do is go to where you are present and offer you these these tokens of my love for you and my devotion to you. And and I want to offer up these sacrifices that are going to atone for my sin. Look at verse 15. I will offer to you burnt offerings of fattened animals with the smoke of the sacrifice of rams. I will make an offering of bulls and goats. Selah. So the psalmist is telling us how to deal with affliction. Trust God in it and desire to worship the Lord in it. And, and, and again, he, he does the same thing 
in what follows that middle section on affliction that he had done before that section on affliction. Look at verse 16. Come and hear. He had called us to come and see in verse 5. Now he says, come and hear. And it's interesting how you have this this dynamic between seeing what God has done and then hearing the inspired interpretation of its significance. That's what we've got in the Bible. You don't just have raw acts of power when the Bible narrates these miracles. You have a description of this mighty act of God, and then you have an interpretation of it, a a telling of what it means, and that's what we're getting here. Come and hear. I called you to come and see, verse 5. Now I'm telling you to come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell what he has done for my soul. I cried to him with my mouth. I think he's talking about when he was afflicted. I cried to him with my mouth, and high praise was on my tongue. So in addition to the the trusting of the Lord and the promising to worship the Lord, high praise was on my tongue. You know, it's just a reality that if you're relying on God in the midst of your affliction, you are praising him. And and really, in some ways, there's no higher praise you could offer. If, If you are suffering or if you are constantly coming back on some set of circumstances that you just wish you weren't dealing with this, and in the midst of all that, you are you are returning your thoughts to the Lord, conscious of his presence, and, and you are refusing any, uh, any in, inclination to doubt him, to question him, to, to accuse him, or to, to denounce him, forsake him. You're rejecting all that. You're trusting him. You're devoted to him. You're praising him as you call on him to deliver you. Look at what he says here in verse 17 and then into verse 18. I cried to him with my mouth and high praise was on my tongue. Verse 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart. Now think about the circumstances, you know, vague as they are. Think about the circumstances that the psalmist has dealt with. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, what would that look like? Well, I think there are probably wicked sources of comfort that he could have sought. My life is so bad I'm going to resort to this addictive substance, maybe, to get some relief. My life is so bad, I'm going to resort to this forbidden activity just to have some pleasure because look how awful my life is. My life is so bad, I'm not bothering with that old book that's got all those promises in it that obviously aren't coming to pass in my life. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, So he's rejecting all that. Wicked sources of comfort, wicked sources of relief, wicked hopes, wicked hopes. I want to be exalted. I want to be praised. I want to have my relief realized. He's rejecting all that, isn't he? If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. You know, Think about this dynamic. If you're cherishing iniquity in your heart, you're probably not praying to begin with. And if you are praying, you're probably praying for wicked things. 
oh, God, give me what I want. You, you know what I'm saying? If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have. God doesn't hear those kinds of prayers. He refuses those kinds of prayers. You know what this text literally says in verse 18? It says, if I had looked at iniquity in my heart, if I had looked at it. And, and that, that sort of brings us into the process of cherishing, doesn't it? Because what it tells us is the psalmist is speaking of his imagination. He's speaking of what he refused to fantasize about. He's speaking of what he refused to create in his brain or in his heart and then gaze at. He, he, he refused all iniquitous imaginings, all unlawful fantasizings. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So he refused to do that. And he says in verse 19, but truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. I've been telling my kids all summer as we've been playing baseball, the three oldest boys, that baseball is like a school of failure. And it's just a reality. I mean, even the best hitters are going to succeed three out of ten times when they come to the plate. You are, you are not going to succeed every time out. Even the best fielders are going to make errors. Baseball is a school of failure. You know what? The same is true of life. Life is a school of failure and affliction. And, and God's purpose is to refine and purify people who rely on him in the midst of it. That's what this psalm is teaching us. This psalm is teaching us how to rely on the Lord, how to, how to have high praise on our tongues, verse 17. And it's telling us that one step to that is to reject the iniquity in our hearts, verse 18, so that we can be those who, like the psalmist, testify, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. And he continues in verse 20, Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. God was faithful to this psalmist. He was with this psalmist. And the character of God, God's steadfast love, held this psalmist. So we want to learn from Psalm 66 to trust God in our affliction. Now from Psalm 67, we want to learn how to train our affections to hope and glory in God's goodness. These two things go together, don't they? They go together because it's learning to hope in who God is and what God is going to do that helps us to banish the iniquity that we're tempted to cherish in our hearts. Psalm 67 is short but it is as dense as it is short. And so what, what I want to try to do here is walk through this thing slowly so that we can try to tease out everything that's implied and everything that it's stated. Because if we just read over it, it would all go right past us. And, and there's a lot here that we would miss. So look at verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. Now, I hope that when we read that verse, what comes to your mind is number 6, verses 24 through 26, this blessing that the, the Levitical priests placed over the people of Israel. You remember what they said? The Lord bless you. There's one of those words. 
May God be gracious to us and bless us. May God bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Make his face to shine upon us there in verse 1. And be gracious to you, right? May God be gracious to us. So this is just a reformulation of number 6, 24 through 26. And do you know what's at the heart of it? Think about the end of verse 1. Make his face to shine upon us. For What is necessary for God's face to shine upon you? What's necessary is God's presence, isn't it? So what's unstated, but what makes this work is the idea, God be with us. God be present with us and favorably disposed to us. Thus, his face will shine upon his people. Um, I think that, I think we should think in terms here of God being our Father. And um, uh, last, last Sunday, God provided for us, the last time I preached, I mentioned that we were going to Somerset and that we needed a place to stay, and the Lord met our need. Um, there turned out to be a pastor a guy named Bill Haynes, who's a trustee of the seminary, who lives in Somerset, and he just happened to be in Florida this month, and his house happened to be unoccupied, and so God providentially worked it together, so that the, and the Haynes just happened to be Christian, godly, wonderful people, and so they just threw their doors open to us and let us stay in their house. Well, last Saturday, Jill and Jake uh, left and came back to Somerset, and so I was there with, pardon? So came back to Louisville. Yeah, I said came back to Somerset. Came back to Louisville, and that left me and Luke and Jed down in Somerset. And there was something about Jill and Jake and Evie and Isaiah leaving that just made me emotional. Made me, I don't know, it just awakened all these fatherly kinds of feelings. And I, I felt so, uh, so much love for, for Jake. And then uh, we go out there to that baseball game, and, and I see my kid come up to hit, and... It, I, I just felt so much pride in him. And then I look over and I see Luke being such a great kid to other kids. And I just, my face was shining on my kids, right? And I think that this is the kind of idea that the psalmist is getting at. And that number six, 24 to 26, is petitioning this fatherly love for his children that causes him to radiate with gladness and with good intentions. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Now in verse 2, the psalmist tells us why he wants God to do that. Verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Now again, there's some implicit things that are being assumed here. What's assumed here is... If God is gracious to Israel and present with Israel and blesses Israel, what's going to happen? Israel is going to expand. The borders are going to, are going to stretch out and, and more people are going to come under the law of God and under the goodness of God. And before you know it, it's going to be like Psalm 2. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance. So the way of God, God's character, he's both just and merciful, and that character is communicated and reflected in the laws that God gave to Israel, your way will be known on earth as more people come under this good set of instructions that you've given. 
your saving power among all nations. Your saving power. God is the God who declared himself to be one who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. So God's way will be known and God's salvation will be known if if God's people pray for blessing. This is why we pray for blessing. This is why we want the church to grow. This is why we want more ability to do more ministry, that the way of God may be known on earth, his saving power among all nations. We don't want to just have nice bathrooms. We don't want to just have a big, fancy facility. Uh, we checked in. We went, we, um, uh, when, we, when we went down there to, the, to Somerset, um, the registration was at a church in Somerset. And I was sort of walking around, and... Um, at the like middle school children's check-in, they had three Mac computers that are like locked down that are just there all the time. Three, three you know, MacBook Air computers that are locked to the counter. This is in the middle of the week. Nobody's using these things through the week, which means these computers only get used. We don't want to just have nice stuff that sits around all week is what I'm saying here, okay? And then the same thing was true in the nursery, and they had these little things that would print out these. It was really fancy, really nice. That is not why we want God to bless us. We want God to bless us so that his ways will be known among people who don't know him, people who don't experience his goodness. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago. I'm listening to this biography of uh, Chairman Mao in China. And maybe you've heard of the Long March. Uh, The Long March was a devastation that Mao wrote, worked on his own army. The, 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 the communists in Russia were telling the Chinese what to do, and Mao's instructions were to travel to a certain location and link up with another, another warlord, basically, another general, another man who had another army. And the Russians wanted those two armies linked up. Well, Mao didn't want to go link up with that other general because at the moment, that other general had more troops, more influence, more power. And if Mao had linked up with that other general, he would have come under his control. And he didn't want that. So you know what he did? He wandered all over China. He just kept marching those people all over China. And, and he reduced, I, I forget the, the exact numbers, but he had this massive army, most of which died. More people died on the march than survived. It was horrendous, horrific suffering because he wanted power. He was not concerned for those people. That is wicked injustice. That's the kind of thing that God's way saves people from. God's truth comes in and says, no, we don't want a leader like that. We want a leader who's going to care about us. We don't want a leader who's going to kill us. We want a leader who's going to die for us, which is what God gives us in Jesus. And, And when people are delivered from those kinds of lifestyles and those kinds of governments. Verse 3, let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. And then verse 4, let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity, righteousness, uprightness. The people are judged. I mean, in China, I'm learning that that Across the history of communism in China, there are people who have made hundreds of self-denunciations. People who have denounced themselves repeatedly. And the reason they had to do that is because the communist 
government required that they make one statement publicly at one time, and then when the circumstances change, they need to make another public statement of another kind of policy, and so what they have to do is go back and denounce themselves for taking the other line, which they took because they were getting it. It's wicked. It is not upright. It is not righteous. But this is, God is going to bring justice. God is going to judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. And then verse 5 repeats verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. We, we must not miss the connection uh, that is evident in the fact that verse 4, let the nations be glad, is surrounded by verses 3 and 5. Let the peoples praise you. I submit to you that there is a logical connection here between praise and gladness. Gladness comes from praise. And I think that's the point the psalmist wants to make by bracketing this statement. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy with let the peoples praise you. There is a personality cult in China that worships Chairman Mao. Just maybe two weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, the weekend edition in the review section, there was an article, Mao Now. And, And what they're dealing with is the dead charismatic leader who was the center of the cult of personality. And so the current leadership of China is trying to navigate how they present themselves to a population that is accustomed to worshiping Chairman Mao when they're changing certain of Mao's policies. And when there's a whole history of things, like the Long March, that they don't want the people to know about. Well, there's no such problem with God. There's no no problem if God is at the center of the personality cult. If if God is at the center of the worship, we don't have to, you know, white out certain aspects of his legacy. And and there will be no, no loss in our joy. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Let the peoples praise you. Let the peoples praise you. That's going to produce the gladness because there is nothing and no one that could be more satisfying than God. And and the psalmist is making the point that, that worship is what makes us glad. This is what we were made for. Praise is purifying. When we praise what deserves to be praised, it is purifying. Praise is our response to God's unmatched goodness. And when we experience God's goodness, and then when we celebrate it, the celebration of God's goodness, as C.S. Lewis wrote, it's like it, it consummates the enjoyment of God's goodness. This is why when, when something great happens... Um, in, you know, in, a, in a major sport or whatever. Did you see that? We just got to talk about it. We want to tell our friends about what we saw. When we experience God, this is how we respond. We praise him by talking about it. And this is why everybody's so excited about the Olympics. Everybody is so excited about the Olympics and so excited. I mean, some people are excited about college football. Uh, People are excited about these things because we want to be impressed by jaw-dropping feats of greatness. 
that, that reflect unique ability and unmatched power. We want to see people do things that we can't do. The same reason, this is why people like to go places like the coast to see the ocean or the Grand Canyon or Niagara Falls or people go outside at night where there's no light and they look at the starry heavens. We love these indescribable glories because we yearn to see greatness. That's what prompts praise. That's what prompts gladness. When we experience God, we encounter one who is more satisfying and more compelling and more capable and more impressive than anything else in all creation. There is no greater source of gladness than God. And if you think about world history, there is no one who has elicited, as in brought forth, more praise than God. Gladness gives rise to praise, and gladness comes from praise. It comes from knowing God's way and God's salvation, verse 2, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nation, all nations. And those things come from God's gracious good pleasure, verse 1. May God be gracious to us and bless us. And then verse 6, again, I think is pointing to the consummation that is anticipated. Uh, the place of abundance, Psalm 66, 12. Verse 6, the earth has yielded its increase. So, so it's like creation is the Garden of Eden again. It's not bringing out thorns and thistles. It's not refusing to bear fruit for a man who is toiling in sweat and pain and agony. No. The earth is yielding its increase. And then the psalmist repeats this to emphasize it. God, our God, shall bless us. This is indeed what God will do. Without fail, God's going to do this. God shall bless us, verse 7, that all the ends of the earth fear him. So this psalm is, is picking up God's purpose for the world when he created it and put Adam in the Garden of Eden. God set about to accomplish that same purpose when he redeemed Israel from Egypt and placed them in the land of promise. God meant to cause the dry lands to be covered with his glory like the waters covers, cover the seas. And he meant for people who reflect who he is to exercise dominion over all that he made. And God wants to bless all the nations with the knowledge of his character and salvation that all nations may be glad in him, that everyone might praise him. This is why we keep sharing the gospel and we keep sending people to the nations. God is pursuing this purpose through the church. And when Christ returns, the purpose will be realized. Now let's circle back to these points of application. Trust God in affliction and train your your affections to hope and glory in God's goodness. And, and let's, let's ask the question, how? How do we do this? Because what happens to us is we find ourselves in circumstances we don't like, and we're not even thinking about the Lord. We just start spouting or spewing what's in our hearts. Okay, so first, uh, how-to step. How-to step number one. Psalm 66, verse 18. Cherish no iniquity in your heart. 
reject it, repudiate it. Don't let yourself harbor ideas of wickedness. And, and what, what I think you should think in terms of, okay, I am not the creator. I am not the center of the universe. So I'm not going to be able to bring about some alternative fantasy realm. I need to accept the fact that God is the creator. God has made my circumstances. God is in charge of my life. And what I need to desire is what God says he's going to do. And how do, we, how do, I, get, how do I get myself to that point? To where when I'm afflicted, when I'm weak and I'm tired and, and I'm, I'm needy, how do, I, how do I find the strength to reject iniquity that wants to bloom in my mind? Psalm 66, verse 16. Come and hear all you who fear God and I will tell what he has done for my soul. We need to remember what God has done for us. We need to recount all his goodnesses to us. We owe to him life and breath and everything. And he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. In the midst of affliction, how do, how do I trust God in the midst of affliction? Psalm 66.10, we have to remember that there's a purpose in this to purify us. And then finally, how to step. Psalm 67, know God, praise him, enjoy him, be glad in him. And if you're saying to me, well, God is not what makes me happy. What makes me happy is college football. Or what makes me happy is hanging out with my buddies. Or what makes me happy is, I don't know, fill in the blank in your life. What makes me happy is checking off all the things on my to-do list. It's not God that drives me. Repent. Repent and, and take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ and start thinking in terms of, okay, how does my to-do to list line up with what God says he's going to do in the world? How, how does this next set of things that I've got to do fit with God's ultimate purposes? And then once I try to get these things aligned and I get my thinking on a consistent level, now... God, help me to enjoy you as I pursue your purposes through what you have given me to do. And, and if it's some wicked pleasure, think in terms of, is this wicked pleasure somehow going to be consummated in the new heavens and new earth? And if it's not, you need to reject it. You need to get rid of it and stop pleasing yourself with it. Cut it off. And, and then what you need to do is you need to say, okay, if I'm living for the new heavens and new earth, how do I somehow anticipate that and find joy in that now. Lord, help me to think in those terms. What we want to do is we want to trust God in the midst of our affliction, and we want to train our affections to hope and glory in God's goodness. Rejecting any iniquity we might cherish in our hearts, remembering what God has done for us, knowing that his purpose is to purify us, and then knowing him. Let's pray. Father, none of us can do this apart from the grace that you have lavished on your people through the power of the Holy Spirit that you've poured out into our hearts. Lord, we won't love you unless you pour out your Spirit into our hearts. 
just as Romans 5 says you have done for your people. And we're asking that you would cause it to be more and more our experience in all of life, that we would know you, that we would walk with you, that we would be strong by your grace, through faith, in the midst of affliction, in the midst of our neediness and weakness, to refuse to cherish iniquity in our hearts, but rather to hope and trust in you, because you are what we want, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.